energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. Biofuels will play a key role in the energy transition. If we can develop the methods for turning agriculture and food products into fuel, it could be a game changer. Bio-based fuels could emit 80% fewer emissions than crude-based products that virtually dominate the market today. Waste and recycling plastics could also drive biofuel adoption. However, virtually none of that material is used today. But if it is, it could supply an extra 20 million barrels per day of liquid fuel by 2050. On the podcast today, we look at the need for the refining sector to adopt in the same way the petrochemical industry has by adopting new technologies and establishing non-fossil fuel feedstocks. So with that, let's get into it. First up, we have John Cooper joining us. John Cooper is Director General of Fuels Europe and Kinkawe. Fuels Europe represents the interests of 40 companies operating refineries in Europe and liaises with EU institutions to promote economically and environmentally sustainable refining. Kinkawe is the science organization that supports Fuels Europe and the industry. John, first off, welcome to the show. Sure, thank you. It's great to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. So I'm a big fan of bottom line up front. So what is one thing you think everyone should know about biofuels? We need a strategy to really get much bigger in scale. And that's exactly what we'll talk about. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Next up joining us, we have Alan Gelder. Alan is a vice president of refining chemicals and oil markets. Alan, it is truly a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Liz. Great to be here. Alan, same question to you. What's one thing everyone should know about biofuels? It could be the great future opportunity for a circular economy. I, I really like what John said. He kind of nicked my words. I could prove he'd all I've written them down. But unfortunately, he went with John first. <laughs> I, I did flip a coin, actually. <laughs> all right. So I'm really pumped to actually get into this. I have some hopefully pretty tough questions today. First, let's provide a bit of background. What does the current biofuel supply look like globally? Where is it coming from and what is it made of? Alan, I'm going to kick it over to you first. In terms of what's the supply, how much? You could argue it's a lot, but actually it, to a degree it's almost a little. So it's about 3 million barrels a day is biofuels, about 2 million barrels a day of that go into gasoline, which is primarily ethanol, which comes from sugars and corn and grain, sort of corn. The other, just over a million barrels a day, goes into diesel gas oil. And that really is from sort of vegetable oil and some of the other more advanced feedstocks. So three million barrels a day sounds a lot, but actually the global oil market this year is about 98 million barrels a day. So in which case, then it's a little. But if we narrow it down a bit and go how much is transport fuels, gasoline is about 25 million barrels a day. Diesel gas oil is about 28 million barrels a day. So there's a great opportunity to scale this stuff up. And what exactly is it made of? I'm just, I'm curious. I'm a curious scientist coming here. Are we talking algae? Are we talking somehow fermented dinosaurs? What exactly is this stuff? <laughs> um, for the diesel aspects, the biodiesel, the US uses biodiesel or renewable diesel. It's largely treated vegetable oil. So... It's, a, it's largely a food-based crop. And ethanol, 
ethanol from corn, from maize. Well, that's what you drink. I think I should defer to John from a quip that he said earlier <laughs> about the Belgian <laughs> renewable organization. John, what was it, Ben? Who, uh, the, who was the, it? The Belgian Biofuels Association that has this wonderful motto, which is, you should drink the best and burn the rest. <laughs> I can just see that like printed on coasters everywhere. And if not, it really, really should be. In Flemish, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to think about that next time I enjoy like a good Flemish red or Flemish sour. Mm. So going back to the question at hand, John, I'm curious from a more European perspective, what does the current biofuel supply look like globally? Or what does it look like with the European perspective in mind? Yeah, building on what Alan said, it is, I mean, it's driven by one underlying policy, the Renewable Energy Directive that came in in 2010. And broadly speaking, in the diesel, it's mostly based on vegetable oil, rapeseed, soy, and some palm. All has to be sustainable according to European uh, standards. And it's converted mostly into a fatty acid methyl ester fame. There is an increasing supply of hydrogenated vegetable oil, which is very nice quality product, which is almost indistinguishable from diesel or jet fuel. On the gasoline side, the majority of the biofuel component comes in the form of ethanol, and there the majority is from grains, probably mostly European being from wheat, various different grades of wheat. There will be some from uh, American corn or maize and small amounts of sugarcane from Brazil as well. There are some quite small quantities of, but growing quantities of waste-based biofuels, mostly waste oils, but increasingly from a small start, other wastes, plastic waste, for example, growing in use uh, with a number of startups and small plants now now being built in Europe. I should say overall, that's around between six and seven percent of the total road transport fuel demand. In aviation, it's tiny at the moment, but growing It's much less than 1% at the moment, uh, but there have been some targets set and it will start growing in aviation as well. Six or 7% Mm -hmm. for land-based transport. Wow. That's surprising. If if I were to pick a number out of the air, I think I would have picked a lot smaller than that. Is that number growing just out of curiosity? It's pretty flat at the moment, uh, but the RED is, the Renewable Energy Directive is going through revision and it will be required to go higher to 14% or higher, depending on which year you pick. And that's in the overall fuel pool for for road and uh, well, yeah, for for road transport. And there are also some separate mandates for aviation and maritime. So it is it's required to grow anyway. But I think those of us in industry say we could still do more with the right policies, and we're not really sure that we've got the right policies yet. Okay, I want to come back to the policy pieces here broadly, Alan. I'm curious from your perspective, what is the current demand for fuel? And do you have a sense of globally how much of that is supplied by biofuels? So the transport fuels, if we just look at gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, probably talking about total 60 million barrels a day. And if you just think about, we've got about 3 million barrels a day of of liquid biofuels, you're talking about 5%. So Europe at its seven is higher than the global average because you've got much lower penetration in other regions, notably Middle East, Asia, etc. So globally, it's just about 5%. Okay. Every time I talk to people about biofuels, which I, I probably shouldn't admit that I do more happy hours than not, which is probably a sign of my popularity. If you guys 
listeners, do not bring up biofuels at happy hours. You should try. It's a great way to see what your friends' thoughts are. Or if you know you're an introvert and want to go home early, it's a great way to make a quick escape. (laughs) I say that only partially joking. One topic that comes up a lot, though, is the food versus fuel debate. Prior to the financial crisis, there was a movement to abandon almost all of the food-based biofuel production. Has this changed at all given the current global economic outlook? Do you think we're going to see biofuels made from food-based feedstocks ever again? And then how do we weigh food versus fuel? Go back prior to the sort of global financial crisis. Oil prices were high. Energy demand was growing strongly. There were growing mandates for biofuels. And there were riots in Mexico over the cost of tortilla because of the price of corn was very high. Yeah. And so it was filtering through into food price, filtering through into food prices. We went through the financial crisis. And what we've seen since then is much lower growth. And the regulators really trying to shift away from biofuels that are sourced from food to other feedstocks. The issue now is sort of inflation and the whole thing about high fuel prices, is that influencing food prices? And we've had the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is leading to concerns about global wheat supply, sort of wheat supply for the global south. And so it's coming back up the political agenda again. And uh, biofuels from grains and corn and those sorts of things, they are com- arguably competing with, with food. And that's politically challenging if that's driving food prices up. Maybe I can just add a little, certainly from a European perspective. Biofuels really started to take off you know, around 2000, running up to 2010 was a significant growth. And it was something the fuels industry was asked to do by the governments of the world. And if I take the European example, running up to the time of when the first directive or mandate for blending was created, one of the political drivers was actually to help farmers And before biofuels mandates, there was very significant market intervention by governments to stockpile grains and other other farm produce to maintain farm gate prices. And one of the objectives of the biofuels policy was actually to create more demand for farmers, more stable pricing for those crops, and at the same time, reduce the energy imports into Europe. It originally was not an environmental objective. And... Some of those forces and political directions are still there. But just as Alan has said, it's really clear that you can't take that too far. And you can only really justify sustainable use in terms of not only the environmental footprint, but the social and market aspects of supplying those crops. So, But it is something that, that was done to the industry by governments in the first place. And many of those governments are still in the same position of wanting to support their farmers. So there's a right level for it. And actually, to finish that bit of the story, so the European Union actually agreed a 7% cap on food-based, what we call first-generation biofuel. And we would say as an industry, that's reasonable, that's fair. And so the growth in the future can't come from those crops. And governments need to take a, a fresh look from time to time to make sure that that sort of ceiling level is appropriate. So if we're not using food-based feedstocks, what are we going to use? I'd use an example. I was thinking earlier about how to prepare for, for, this, uh, for this discussion we're going to have. And I think actually, given the audience 
for this. The best example I could give is you consider the range of crude oils that the petroleum industry has used. In the earlier years, going back decades, with very, very simple refining, you would be drawn to crude oils that extremely easily refine through distillation into fuels. And we are now able to take much lower quality of crude oils. But the downside of taking a, a lower quality of crude oil, you need a more complex refinery, you need a lot more technology and a lot more investment. Biofuels is the same, but more so. You know, vegetable oil or ethanol is actually very, very similar to existing fuel. In fact, you can even burn either of them in an internal combustion engine. Certainly, I wouldn't recommend burning neat vegetable oil to get your gummies <laughs> up pretty quickly. But it does happen. And there are ship engines, for example, that will do that. But then at the other end of the scale, imagine a pile of tree stumps uh, that are very difficult to turn into anything else. But there's a huge amount of energy in there. And the, the technology and process required to, to, you know, to get several thousand tons of tree stumps, which exist across Northern Europe and um, Canada, for example, and turn that into a diesel that is water white in, in appearance and beautiful quality. There's quite a lot of processing steps. And so it's, it's, a, it's a scale. And we've done the easy part of the fuels, the food-based part. And if the political system wants us to continue to do that, we can do that. But we'll likely just keep it flat. And so you then start going down into lower levels of quality. The first stop along the way is waste oils, things like used cooking oils or oils from forestry process and various other things. I've even heard fish oils and other things used. Um, and some of these processing plants can get a bit smelly when they're using some of these uh, uh, different waste streams. Um, but waste oils is something we're already well along the way. And used cooking oil and animal fats are already substantially used for production of biodiesel in Europe and also for California. Now, just to build on John's point, the, the term waste oils, because what else would you do with them? You might incinerate them or you might just dispose of them. So I can say particularly prevalent, you see it in the UK, where McDonald's advertise that they use their used cooking oil to fuel their delivery trucks. And so it, it's using something that would otherwise need to be disposed of to convert it into a convert it into a fuel. And that applies to sort of palm oil, mill effluent. There's all these things that are wastes from the current process that we have. Those are now being sort of pulled into the biofuel pool because otherwise they need to be disposed of. It's then thinking more holistically as to what are potential other wastes that we could process. My, I'm sorry, my mind is just blown here. I haven't really thought about it in terms of creating such a circular economy around this, this waste integration. To do this, though, what advances do we need along the supply chain? One of the things is, I mean, we actually have all of the technologies to do all of this. But I will be clear that as you go down the scale in terms of quality of feedstock, we can certainly do more to improve the technologies. And again, there, I'd say it's a little bit like battery technology is good enough to do a significant scale up of electric cars. But actually, already people are saying it may not be the lithium ion battery. We need another breakthrough to have really major global penetration of electric vehicles. And I would say we're somewhere similar with the processes for advanced biofuels, taking lower quality biomass. And 
this is where one of the points I'll make is that as part of our strategy, we should have a much bigger vision and support for R&D for these technologies. I mean, here's a thought that gives you some idea of the potential here. You watch a, a cow grazing in a field. It's substantially fed by grass. And the end result is milk, beef, and some fats from the, from, from the animal. And so the animal's processes, the animal's uh, enzymes and, and stomach processes, all exist and are able to do those conversions. And we have probably millions of examples in the natural world of animals and plants doing conversion of one material to another. And we need to find better routes than what we've got today. It's good enough, but we can actually go much further and faster. And it would mean getting more efficiency out of a plant. I mean, out of an industrial plant, it would mean getting a greater portion of fuel out of a given ton of biomass, for example. And so there's a lot of potential there. And the potential biomass available is large. In Europe alone, we've done the work. Konkawi has commissioned a report that was done by Imperial College in the UK and showed that there's sufficient feedstock to make something like uh, 70 million tonnes of advanced biofuels a year in, um, in Europe alone. And then there's potential to go further with other synthetic fuels. But, and that's a relatively small landmass like Europe. If you start taking that globally and start looking at Africa or South America, the potential is vast. I have a degree in geomicrobiology, and one thing that always drew me to the microbes is that they had a head start on us. They had 4.6 years of evolution to really hone those processes and couple those enzymatic reactions, just like you were saying. Alan, anything you wanted to add here? If you think about oil at the moment, it's a global supply chain where crude oils move half around the world, as do products. If we're dealing with biomass, biomass residue, waste streams, you're dealing with something quite different in that it's moving solids. And so there's a degree to which actually, if you're thinking about moving waste materials, there's probably a limit as to how far you, as to how far you can go. So it kind of makes the process a little bit more local because if you're shipping waste half around the world, the, 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 cost, the cost and also emissions associated with that probably outweigh the benefits. So there is just broadly a scale issue of how far can you move wastes to be converted from things that are actually probably not that energy dense. The energy dense things are the liquids that you produce out of this that you burn. That's the brilliant thing about oil and oil products is the energy density of those liquids. As a solid before you've processed it, a big chunk of it is water and you're moving water around. So there's a whole scale issue that says this industry would be probably the initial first step of the collection and the initial processing would be much more local rather than global that you see now for the refining sector. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And it, it really does mean that a big part of this, this work and strategy is working out how to build those value and supply chains from the sources of the feedstock, which may be uh, forests and forestry mills uh, or farms, farm fields for that matter, to get what are quite low quantities, tonnage, uh, from those to supply to the, the eventual plant. And remember, ideally, you want that supply to be 365 days a year. You don't want to be running the plant three, four months when a certain harvest comes in, etc. 
And so what that almost certainly means is breaking down the overall production process into some form of pre-processing system, which could be, for example, pyrolysis, very close to your source of biomass. And you'd have many of those then making the material much easier, more dense to transport to your final processing plant. And so it's it's different. It looks different from a refining system, which is one huge production facility, often pipeline-fed or fed by very large crude carriers. It's a much more diversified approach. So I want to talk about the economy real quickly. What would the economic impacts be if we could adopt municipal waste biofuel production at a mass scale? It makes that initial processing step much more diffuse or distributed and much more local because those conversion facilities will need to be near where the source of the waste is. You need arguably high-skilled labour, high-skilled jobs to do that. So it, to a degree, distributes more evenly that whole economic benefit of that type of activity. In the current climate, one of the things that's a huge benefit for that is security of supply. You're not reliant on supply from somebody that you geopolitically, you're not so friendly with anymore because of what they're up to. So there's some other benefits in addition to just purely the local economic benefits of lots of small scale industrial production in the local neighborhood. I guess I'd also say economically, there's a number of things obviously going on there. Certainly if you're simply, if you're replacing uh, the demand for uh, for crude oil, then there's an immediate benefit for countries that don't have uh, crude oil because you, you're you're using local produce rather than importing crude oil. You're almost certainly creating rural jobs around that uh, value chain of creating, collecting, uh, you know, hundreds of tons at a time, getting it through pre-processing, etc. Um, uh, but the other interesting thing for us. I mean, look, there's an obvious comparison here with how does this compare with electrification strategy? And let's be clear, electrification is going to be really important and do a lot of the heavy lifting of decarbonizing transport. And and there's also, there's an economic comparison that's often done where people say, but look, electricity is getting cheaper and renewable electricity can be very cheap on a marginal basis. Right now, that doesn't look such a good comparison. We've got some very high electricity prices, certainly in Europe. Um, but the point is still good fundamentally. However, there's a really important difference. Uh, de- achieving decarbonization of your, of your transport and, and you know, uh, the circular economy for road transport using biofuels actually means that you no longer need a massive investment in new infrastructure for distribution um, uh, strengthening of the electricity grid, building electric charging posts, etc. Because you essentially would use exactly the infrastructure you've got today, which exists almost everywhere. It's fully depreciated. It's fit for purpose. Storage tanks, pipelines, uh, delivery facilities to literally everything that moves in Europe or, or for another continent for that matter. The fact that these biofuels are essentially drop-in biofuels into the existing infrastructure means that economically, when you produce one of these biofuels, yes, it's more expensive, but that cost is actually your entire system change cost. Whereas if you look at the cost of electrification, you've got to look at the subsidies to get the vehicles on the road, building the new electricity capacity, uh, building the, the batteries, uh, materials access, building the infrastructure for charging the vehicles, etc. And you add all that up, 
from what we can see, I mean, it's quite difficult to do an apples and apples comparison here, but it looks competitive to do advanced biofuels and achieve the decarbonisation that way. Yeah, and, and just we mustn't forget the issue that is being raised now around for electrification. Where do the raw materials come from, the battery raw materials, and where is most of the processing of those metals going on? And are we, is the world shifting a reliance on, say, Middle East countries to reliance on, on China? That's a concern that's being raised in the US right now of how, how do you localise some of these other electrification or the, or the battery production or the mining to avoid a repeat of the issues that we face with, with oil. This waste to biofuels basically democratises it and makes it very local. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I very much agree. When you start looking at how you scale up biofuels, or for that matter, uh, batteries, you certainly in our industry, you come back to the point of how gifted we were to have petroleum for so many years being such a plentiful resource and easy to convert into everything. Of course, we now know the downside of that, uh, that we're increasing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, etc. And so we have to have a change in strategy. But from what we can see, the work that we've done and looked at the, the, the work of other experts, uh, yes, battery supply materials are challenging and finding the feedstocks and the the conversion capabilities for advanced biofuels, there's nowhere near enough yet on those areas. The short answer is we need to do both. And that the risks of either approach are reduced by doing both together. And they have different uh, applications. Electricity is absolutely great for urban areas, especially in, in a plug-in hybrid. You can have a 20 kilowatt hour battery in a vehicle and do the majority of the use of that vehicle. But if every vehicle has to have a 100 kilowatt hour battery, you may have just limited your vehicle production because you can't access the materials for the batteries fast enough. And so we would argue, why don't we have a strategy to make everything plug-in hybrid? Have a strategy to encourage or require people to plug in the vehicle so that actually you get really good use out of your plug-in hybrid. And for everything else you need the vehicle for when you do longer journeys, you use a renewable fuel. And there you've got real energy security at the individual level. And you've not got all your eggs in one basket. That's something we would like to see and uh, we're encouraging. And we're actually talking with a number of different parties about how we could set up real demonstration programs in cities with exactly that kind of uh, format. Because, I mean, one of the questions we get asked about that is, how do you assure that plug-in hybrid is getting a renewable fuel? And we're saying, we absolutely have those accounting mechanisms. You've already got the accounting mechanisms for for your home if you want to buy 100% renewable electricity. Yeah. You can have an electricity company that can send the, elect- the renewable electricity down the wire with an accounting system that can demonstrate back to you that it's renewable electricity. We can do exactly the same. And we actually already account for every single litre of biofuel we, we do in Europe today. So... You know, whether it's blockchain technology or some other old-fashioned technology, there's absolutely ways to, to link a customer to their source of fuel. And so we would say, why don't we pursue that mixed plug-in hybrid approach more widely? Because we actually think it'll allow you to go faster in decarbonization with fewer risks. So I want to come back to that in just a second. Ellen, 
quickly, can you explain the concept of a circular economy in this context? It's something that that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, but it's been tickling in the back of my mind. Well, it's really around making use of the materials that are available to you locally based on the country production, the levels you've got, and becoming self-sufficient and avoiding disposal and making use of those streams. So one of the things that we'll have for this waste of biofuels is the residues that will be processed will depend on whether it's an urban area, if it's a rural area, is it Scandinavia where a lot of it is forestry or is it in France where a lot of it will be crop residues. So it enables you to tailor your approach to your local situation and dynamics and provide security of supply through the materials that you generate. So it's really building self-reliance. That, that's probably the key driver of this. Maybe I can give an example that would, that would help here. I mentioned earlier that there's now growing production of HVO in Europe, which is almost chemically identical to diesel or jet. When we started doing that as an industry, that actually created initially a problem with regulators because they were saying, how can we tell that it's biofuel then? Because it really looks the same. And so we actually came up with a technique as an industry, which is to use carbon dating. Liz, you were saying your own history with geology and microbiology, you'll, yeah. you'll know something about this. So basically, you take a sample of the fuel and you do carbon dating on the uh, carbon in the fuel. And if it's petroleum, it says, yeah, there's carbon there and it's millions of years old. Years old. Right. And you do HVO <laughs> and it comes and it says, yes, there's carbon here. And it's about, about last year. And it's, yeah, and, it's, and it's a year old. Right. And so you think about that carbon, the carbon that's in that fuel. It came out of the atmosphere very recently. And in order to replace that fuel, you grow something new that sucks the carbon out of the atmosphere, fixes it in the plant that you then turn into a fuel. So that carbon is literally doing a circle. Yes, your vehicle emits carbon just the same as if it was uh, using petroleum. But the critical difference is that that carbon then, or an equivalent amount of carbon, gets sucked out of the atmosphere to replace that fuel. And so it is actually correctly, scientifically described as carbon neutral as a process. It were, it were, it's circular, yeah. My mind has just been blown. That is one of the coolest things I've ever heard of it. It is the very definition of a circular carbon economy. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, and we developed that in our industry to convince governments that, yes, this is the bio content of this fuel. And they accepted it. So it's, it's, it's an established technology. And it's actually, to be honest, it's exactly the same as what we do as mammals on the surface of the earth. We are consuming food, oils, fats, and sugars, which are extremely close to fuels. And we breathe out carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. but, but that is relatively recent carbon dioxide that was fixed by plants. Uh, well, even if we eat uh, if we eat meat, it was still originally plants. And so everything that we breathe out as carbon dioxide is climate neutral. And by going to biofuels, you turn your internal combustion engine into something exactly the same, climate neutral, because you've got a circular economy for the carbon. All right, so. Touching back on the political dynamics, like I promised we do, John, what type of policies are needed to support biofuels is a key player on this road to net zero? 
So there's already a lot happening. We have got the Renewable Energy Directive. We've got mandates now on aviation and shipping. So there's already a lot happening. But we, we've we consistently been saying we can do more if we have some stronger policies. And let me just start it from what do you need as an investor? Actually, if you're an investor, you need to buy the feedstock, you need to build a plant, and then you need to produce a fuel that for a long time has been significantly more than the petroleum that does exactly the same thing for the customer. So your customer needs to have a reason to buy that fuel, which is more expensive than petroleum. And they need to be recompensed. It could be something, a requirement on them, or it could be a tax change or something. But what the investor needs is to be able to write a spreadsheet which says, for the next 10 to 15 years, I know there will be a demand for that product at this price point, and then I can finance this project and build the plant. It's a little bit like you want to go and buy your first house. You've got to know that you've got a stable income through a good job so that you can pay that mortgage. And so our definition of a suitable policy is something that we can convert into typically a long-term contract to take the product of the, uh, of, of the plant. It's not the same as when you do a refinery, when you simply know by really good experience the demand is there. You make it and the demand is there. You actually need a greater level of assurance by being able to create long-term contracts. We've proposed that that can be done with vehicle fleets, for example. Um, where a vehicle fleet operator, a truck, a truck fleet operator, could get significant benefits from buying renewable fuel to have their trucks recognized as climate neutral so that they can pay a little more for a renewable fuel to the, yeah. to the plant builder and investor so that everybody can build that supply chain from the, from the farmer or the forestry or the waste oils collectors all the way through to uh, the producers of the fuel and the final customer. And the key thing is these fuels are more expensive than the crude oil derived ones. Just the production process. So that there needs to be a way in which that additional higher price is captured and the investment is compensated. And there's some compensation for that investment. Because without a regulation that requires the use of those fuels, if people are thinking purely cost only, then it's something that you would arguably choose not to do. So there needs to be the certainty on the policy that these low carbon fuels, these waste biofuel, these waste of biofuels will be increasingly required in the fuel mix to give that long-term certainty that John's described. I'll just give you another example, something to think about, a different way to think about it. Um, in Europe, the audience will be familiar with now paying two euros a litre for the fuel. Um, I certainly know the American audience will probably be shocked at that number, but that's what we pay. And the American audience is probably having a hard time converting the liters to gallons because I know I am in my head. I'm like, $2 a gallon seems wonderful. Oh, wait, mm, two, that's yeah. not $2 a gallon. Yeah, yeah, we're, closer to, about, we're closer to $8 a gallon. It's about, it's, yep. about eight a ga it's about eight a gallon, which the U.S. Yep. is coming down from now, yeah, coming yep. down from five. So. so you guys in the U.S. will get no sympathy from the Europeans, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, but if, if we take that data point, say two euros a litre, that's fully taxed. And the bit, of course, the difference is very much uh, what's called motor, or motor fuels taxation in Europe. And that's typically applied effectively at a rate of around 100%, actually. And strangely, you bring to market biofuels and it's taxed in the same way, uh, despite the fact that these are close to climate neutral. And our point is this, is that 
most advanced biofuels, the studies that we've seen typically come in at a production cost of maybe around two euros a litre. And this is for a really sustainable advanced biofuel that could be either close to climate neutral and in some cases even better than climate neutral. And two euros a litre, if we were able to sell those untaxed, it would be affordable and competitive at the pump today. But we can't. And we haven't had that taxation reform. And that's one of the things that really is outstanding. It's something that could really boost the demand and the investment case, and we could really accelerate if we get some of these changes. So with that, I want to wrap up with one last question, and that is, how does the refining industry need to adapt in order to follow the lead of the petrochemical industry in delivering change? They need to, to a degree, get on with it and deploy it. It's a very simple phrase. <laughs> yeah? uh, as John mentioned, a lot of the technology is, is known it needs to be improved, it needs to be scaled up, it needs to be tested, trialled and run. And so the industry needs to firstly decide which sites it's not going to convert to biocytes, so which ones are going to maintain operational, and then work out how it can deploy these technologies, partner with collectors, providers to actually undertake this, this investment and this conversion process and become part of the broader solution. We've seen so far over recent years, uh, particularly sort of driven by the pandemic, where a number of small refineries were converted to biocytes. There's actually quite a compelling business case for that, where you take an asset that's competitively weak, volatile earnings, converted into a biocyte, you're able to reuse some of the equipment. It's something that's smaller in scale in terms of production, but actually much more stable in in marginal contribution. So actually it's a value enhancing thing. We've seen a number of companies do that. So there's the degree to which companies rationalize their portfolio in terms of which sites they're going to do that with, and then how they go and work out what's the best technology to deploy for the sites, given where they're located, what feedstocks are available, and get on that journey of improving their technology, driving out costs, improving the yields and efficiencies that it has been that basically it does every day. I guess I, I would say, you know, you, you look at the membership of Fuels Europe and Konkawi, actually a large number of those companies are also running integrated sites with chemicals. And so actually this is happening in parallel. And I'll just give you a couple of examples where things can be um, mutually supportive. First of all, if you've got a process gathering biomass and then producing a fuel or liquid from that, it's very possible that it'll make sense to take some of that and use it as a pet chem's feedstock, just as you do today when you split petroleum. And then coming the other way, there are already pilot programs and operational, small operational sites where plastic recycling is being done. For the lowest grade of plastics, where you simply can't sort it into a particular type of plastic molecule, then that's recycled into basically gasified and then put back into a liquid is another route that's already happening. So it can go both ways. Can I also just finally say, I mean, everything I've been talking about is really based on the work of Konkawi. And if you go on the Konkawi's website, their low carbon pathways work. We described over four years ago, actually, what the refinery of the future will look like, how it evolves with the installation of uh, green hydrogen units, 
CCS for taking um, yeah. uh, the, 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 the carbon from, from processing, etc. And all of these uh, diversifications into different feedstocks. And the great thing, the great news is this is really happening. You look across the membership of Fuels Europe. There's a number of sites where big investments are being made to do these investments. And it's very often combined with a pet chem strategy as well. So I invite uh, the listeners to look at Concarwi's website and look at the Low Carbon Pathways work there. That's awesome. Alan, where can listeners find out more about the work that you and your team at Woodmac are doing? So we have sort of first generation analysis biofuels demand within our products market service, but a sort of a shout out to the team, sort of Gordon McManus in particular, we're developing a liquid renewables feedstock service where we're going to look at effectively what traditionally we look at crude oil and how it works its way through the refining system. So we're going to look at agricultural feedstocks and how they work their way through and become part of the energy chain. So that's something I can say, fingers crossed, and Gordon will probably hate me for this, that we, we're dedicated to try and deliver by the end of this year. So if he doesn't know that now, we've stated it fairly publicly now. So that is the cunning plan. So we're looking forward to showing that to sort of our clients, customers, and those who are interested towards the end of this year as we get closer to publishing those deliverables. That's something that we're working hard on now. And then is there anyone in your life at all you want to give another shout out, thank you, special acknowledgements to? You say everybody in my life, God, you have to mention family and everything. It's like <laughs> restricted to work life. We work life. It's, it says my co-authors, Garrett, Gordon, and Guy, who helped really shape this. And behind them, there's the whole oils refining team that support the work that we do and the outlooks that we do. So sort of a big, big shout out to them and the fact that we're moving towards a more circular economy in terms of the asset and market analysis that we do because that's a key part of the energy transition that we'll be part of and for myself i mean i have to mention the, the brilliant work of the Konkawi team that have been working on this strategy and inspiring our members and helping our members for the, the last four or five years with this low carbon pathways work and on the policy side of things how do we turn this into policies that are investable uh, the Fuels Europe team, also based in Brussels, working closely with Konkawi. And everything that I've just been talking through here is really their work. So my big thanks to both Fuels Europe and Konkawi. And then, John, can you mention one more time where listeners can find out more about the work that you and your teams are doing? The two key websites for Fuels Europe, all one word, Fuels Europe. The tagline we've put for that work there is clean fuels for all. And then there's another website, Konkawi, konkawi.eu. And you'll find easily on that website, Low Carbon Pathways, and a number of studies under there, including critically that feedstock study that I mentioned from Imperial College, which is absolutely a foundational study for this work. So the two websites, Fuels Europe and Konkawi, and I'll spell Konkawi, C-O-N-C-A-W-E. It comes from the contraction of Conservation of Clean Air and Water for Europe by the, by the fuels industry. Oh, I was wondering about that. That saved yeah. me a trip down Google. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always been around for about almost it's 60 a long years. Time. Yeah. Yeah, 60 long years. time. Alan and John, this was truly a pleasure. I learned so, so, so much. Thank you both for your time. This was spectacular. You're most welcome. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the interest. Making fuel from waste provides governments and refiners with huge opportunities. For governments, waste to biofuels could be central to achieving net zero aspirations. With hydrogen and other transport technologies, biofuels could power the next generation of transport and logistics. 
In the same vein, refineries now have an opportunity to retain their role as energy providers. To do this, however, they need to become more adaptive and experiment with various approaches to creating biofuels. Creating biofuels offers a viable pathway to a true circular economy, one that can help mitigate the effects of climate change. A shift to feedstocks from waste will help to power the energy transition. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here, though, because as always, we'll leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks, Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, chief analyst at Wood Mackenzie. At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topic. So here they are. High hopes that biofuels would displace fossil fuel-derived diesel and aviation fuel haven't materialized. They currently make up just 3% of the global liquids market. Growth has stalled because the use of plant-based feedstock can impinge on food supply. What we've learned from bioliquid gold is that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Biofuels in the next decade or two can make a major contribution to net zero goals by displacing up to 20 million barrels per day or 20% of fossil fuel-based liquid supply. The three big takeaways for me are, one, technologies are emerging capable of processing waste material that could transform the scale of biofuels production. Two, biofuels can deliver a circular economy between cities that provide the waste and local oil refineries. Three, there's a great opportunity for local refineries threatened with closure to build a sustainable business model processing waste into biodiesel and aviation fuel. Thanks for listening to this, the August edition of Horizons. Thanks to Liz, Alan Gelder and John Cooper for joining us and exploring the opportunity for biofuels. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Join us in a couple of weeks when we'll explore the future of green steel. See you next time.